0: Right. Well, every week as a church, we have teaching from the Bible, and for the past few weeks and right up until Christmas, we're in a teaching series that we've called Grace Works, which is, grace is the, is the Bible's word for God's unconditional kindness to us, and God's kindness to us is what works in changing our lives and in establishing and growing church communities made up of all kinds of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds, And we're we're teaching through the Bible book of Galatians. The Bible is split into two bits, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament, apart from the stories of Jesus, there's lots of different letters that were written by, um, most of them written by a man named Paul, to several churches that he started. And the letter to the Galatians is written to churches in a region known as Galatia, the clues in the title. And The Galatia is what is now modern-day Turkey, and it's a church that has fallen on difficult circumstances or times. Paul uh, was someone that we looked at last week. He wrote a lot of the New Testament, and he was previously like a religious fanatic who thought he was doing God a favor when he imprisoned Christians until he met Jesus one day in a powerful way that turned his whole life upside down. And last week, we looked at Paul's kind of introduction to this letter, where he's, he's furious with this church because he got things started by telling them about Jesus. But after he left, some people came and told them, what Paul said was okay, but we've got the real deal. You need to. And he was telling, it was a church made up of a mixture of Jewish people and non-Jewish people called Gentiles. And he was telling the non-Jewish, the people were telling the non-Jewish people, you need to get circumcised and become Jewish, which the guys weren't particularly happy about, the women didn't mind, um, but the guys didn't particularly mind about it. You need to get circumcised and become Jewish in order to to be a proper Christian, in order to be a proper member of this church. And they were separating themselves at dinner times, and the Jews were eating with the Jews, and the non-Jews were just eating together in their club, and... And Paul hears about this and he's furious and writes what is probably one of the angriest pieces of writing in any religious literature. And he addresses the issues of separation that were going on in the church and distinction between people and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And last week he said, this message that I brought you is not just the latest opinion of man. It's not like a TED Talk. It's just an idea worth spreading. This is God's offer of salvation to the world. If you change it or if you reject it, There's no other help coming. This is what God has given us as a means for our rescue. That's my way of introduction. This week, we're still in that letter, and we are looking at issues to do with partnership, unity, and freedom. We're talking about unity in the church. Slightly unusual part of the letter, but again, as we said last time, sometimes we, we just preach messages that are about topics that are useful for the Christian life. Other times we, get, we, get, we take a letter in the Bible or a piece of the Bible and we go all the way through it, which is useful because it means you can't avoid the awkward bits and then sometimes you can't avoid, avoid the slightly difficult bits or the more obscure bits. So today's reading, might, if you're new to church, might seem a little bit unusual, but hopefully, through what I'm going to say, uh, it will become a little bit clearer by the end. And if it hasn't done, then... And you can tell me afterwards. That would be great. <laughs> so let's read. We're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, through to chapter 2, verse 14. So quite a bit of reading this morning. So Paul, after becoming a Christian, um, other people who were previously persecuted by Paul hear about the fact that he's become a Christian, and this is what he says. They only... We're hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's what Paul was doing. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set it before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Gentile is a non Jewish person, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism or partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a non-Jew and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Well, this past week, um, we saw in our, our news cycles, our TV screens, and that another mass shooting has taken place in America. Uh, it's happened again. 59 people dead and 527 people have been injured. And as always happens when this takes place, rows, old rows about gun control get reignited in, their, in America. And discussions are had in, in the media about what do we do about this problem. It seems that... One solution would be to limit gun control by, sorry, you reduce gun crime by limiting gun control. But that isn't an option that many people in America are even willing to consider. The reason for that is because of freedom. To limit gun control, um, who gets to own guns, is to restrict people's freedom, is to have the government impose themselves on the people. In fact, one writer said this, the core issue in all of this is that many Americans value their freedom so highly that they would prefer to keep their country as free as possible, even if it means that there is a considerably higher risk of death. And it is considerably higher in the States than in other developed countries. Here's a a graph of uh, the number of homicides or deaths by firearm per million people in a population and you see the United States is way out in front they have a real problem with the amount of people killed the amount of people dying as a result of gun crime now it is easy for us to see what goes on and be perplexed by it it's easy for us to criticise But the story that's playing out in America is the same story that we see in our Bibles with respect to the human race. Uh, The Bible says that mankind was given a choice by God in the early days. Trust me, obey me, or trust yourselves and your own desires. In fact, the temptation that was offered to them was... Obey your deepest desires and your appetites and your longings. Do whatever seems right in your own eyes, or submit to God, obey God. And the Bible's story is that the human race chose freedom away from submitting to God, freedom to do whatever we wanted at the risk or at the cost of disobedience to God and separation from God. And it's not just the story of the Bible, it's the story of every human heart ever since. That submission is not something that we choose. We often choose freedom to do whatever we want over submission. Now, Galatians isn't about gun control, um, but our reading this morning comments on that issue of freedom and submission. That's what's going on in the background of Paul's life and Paul's mind. Because for 14 years, he's been preaching the gospel and starting churches in non-Jewish areas. Jesus was a Jew. The first followers of Jesus were Jews. And Jesus told them, go and take this gospel message to the ends of the earth, to the non-Jewish parts of the world. Paul, a man who became a Christian, then did just that and was preaching the gospel to non-Jewish parts of the world. But he now, having done that for many years, trouble has arisen in the churches that he's planted, and he's forced to decide, do I keep running fast and keep going hard-charging at what God's called me to, or do I, well, I could do that, but if I do, I risk the breakup of the churches that I've started, or do I partner more fully with others and risk losing some of my freedom, but achieve more in the long run. This is the dilemma that Paul's going through, and this is a dilemma that all of us face in our lives. You see, we have two aspirations, or certainly there are are at least two aspirations that many of us in in this society aspire to, and we hold up as being good. One is legacy. Legacy. We want to be people who leave a legacy. We want to do things that are significant and valuable. We want to make our mark on the world. We want it so that after we've gone, the world's a little bit better because we've been in it. We want people to think well of us. We want significance. On the one hand, but we also value our freedom and our autonomy, our independence. We want to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it. We might not say it like that, but largely that's what motivates us. The aspiration and desire for freedom. Those two things are good, but they also butt up against each other. It's the dilemma that we face. It's hard to make a name for yourself in a career or profession, the business world or politics, and also have a strong and robust marriage and family. It's not impossible, but it's hard. You have to decide, what am I going to go for? Am I going to go for that and ignore commitment to close relationships? Or am I going to submit myself and restrict on my freedom to have closer relationships? We do it with our time. Should I spend my time and energy working hard so that I have lots of acquaintances and lots of strangers think well of me. Do I spend a lot of energy promoting an image of mine on social media? Or do I use my time instead to invest in fewer relationships but have deeper friendships? That's often the questions that we're we're wrestling with. What we learn from this Bible passage and from Paul is that for the sake of greater effectiveness, effectiveness, we need to restrict some of our freedoms. You need to. If you want to achieve in this, you can't do that often without restricting some of your freedoms. That's the kind of introduction, I think, at the heart of what's going on. Let's talk about this. Paul prizes and values partnership. There's there's an African proverb. I don't know if it's African, but it's a proverb. And most proverbs, if you say, it's an African proverb, you go, oh, okay. Uh, I learned from my African friends, Africans just make up proverbs and say, oh, it's an African saying, and you can say whatever you want. But there's an African proverb out there, or just a proverb. Um, Where it comes from isn't the point. Let's carry on. There's a proverb out there that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And in this Bible passage, that's what we see. We see that Paul restricts some of his freedom. He stops just charging out there in Galatia and all the areas where he's planning a church. He restricts and he submits himself to partnership and to team for the sake of greater impact for the gospel. The stronger the partnership, the stronger the team, the greater the impact. You see that in the original team, marriage. The stronger the marriage, the greater influence and impact that marriage can have on the people around it. You see it in the workplace, you see it in businesses, you see it in churches, you see it in the small groups. The stronger the team, the stronger or greater the impact and effectiveness. I mean, that's why, that's why your workplaces often spend hundreds or thousands of pounds on so-called team-building days. Isn't it? Why? Well, they make you do really awkward and embarrassing things and make you bark like a dog or bark like a sheep for fun, for fun, in the name of team building. Because people know that, those, this is an old saying, isn't there, that those who are humiliated together stay together because I know what you did on that team building day. And that's generally how they work, motivating through shame. Um, but today I want to look at the Bible passage and, and see in it some principles for partnership and some enemies of unity. Principles of partnership and enemies of unity. Let's start with enemies of unity. The first thing that Paul points out as being a problem, I think, or potential problem, is the issue of suspicion. Suspicion of one another. In verse 23, the opening verse, he says, They, they heard that the one who was perse- formerly persecuting them is now preaching the gospel, and they glorified God because of me, Paul said. Now imagine this, you, you hear word on the street that the man that was imprisoning your friends is now preaching that gospel and is seeing a lot of fruit. How do you feel? Well, it wouldn't be unwise to question his motives or to treat that news with slight suspicion. And that happens all the time, not just in this case, but Generally. When people behave or do certain things, the natural default reaction of many of us is to treat those around us with suspicion. Or Actually, what we do is we project onto other people a motive. Rather than asking someone what they meant, we project what we think they meant and we become suspicious of one another. So if someone looks at you in a particular way often you'll convince yourself that it wasn't just a neutral look, that there was cynicism or or nastiness in it, and you conclude that they hate you and want to kill you in your sleep or something. We behave suspiciously or someone says something, and rather than saying, oh, what did you mean when you said that? Because your tone sounded like this. Instead of asking that, we just assume, they hate me. (laughs) Or there must be terrible people. I don't know. We in the church need to guard against projecting onto other people what they think or how they're feeling. Um, for any partnership to work together, we need to do work to fight against suspicion. These people in the church, they glorified God because of what Paul was doing. They thought, oh great, he's on the same team as us and he's preaching the same gospel message. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, so often this, this happens a lot in churches. Um, it happens, I suppose, in every organization where there's competition. But it happens in church. A church down the road has some success in ministry. The church grows or they put on a big event and lots of people come. And the other churches around them, rather than going, fantastic, come on, way to go. They find reasons to criticize it or to be suspicious of what's going on. Ah, yes, they're just after your money. I learned this week that there's a new church that started over at um, the Clinton Center in the afternoons. And after hearing about this, I went home and researched this church. I've not heard of them before. It's a Nigerian missionary church that's moved to Seaford. I thought, fantastic. More people in church to reach the Nigerians of Seaford. Fantastic. And there's loads of them, isn't there? Everywhere? But when I heard of the news that this new church has started, there's a part of me that's like, what do they want? What's their motive? And then I checked myself and thought, no, no, no. That's not the right attitude. Write them a message encouraging them, saying, great to have you. Welcome to the team. We're here to love this town together, aren't we? First enemy of unity is suspicion. Don't just guess someone else's motive. Don't project. Ask them. Um, Next one is compromise. Paul says, I refuse to submit to these people who are trying to distort the gospel. I refuse to submit even for a moment. We have to, when there's any partnership, you have to decide what things you compromise on. But compromising on essentials destroys unity. Unity is not uniformity, and we just go for the lowest common denominator. Another enemy of unity is favoritism. It's something that's quite strange. that As I read it, you might have thought, why is he repeating himself? But several times he says things to the effect of those who seemed influential. What they were means nothing to me. And you think, what's up with you, Paul? Why are you being so dismissive of these people? He's like, oh, they seem to be pillars, or they seem this, and I don't care what they are. What's going on? Paul... Is wanting to show, and he shows it that God shows no par- He says, "God shows no partiality, favoritism in churches, favoritism in families. You know, oh, you're my favorite son; the others pff, don't care so much for you." Favoritism kills unity; it brings division. Uh, fourthly, and lastly, on the enemies of unity, the the one that's perhaps most noticeable of you re- as you read as we read it through is hypocrisy. You know, Peter in verse eleven and twelve, it says this. Um, Next slide. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. And Paul confronts him about this hypocrisy. To be a hypocrite is to put on a show or to present a version of yourself that isn't the true version. It's to distort. It's to be dishonest. Originally, the word hypocrite, or in the Greek, hypocritos, I guess, um, meant actor. To be a hypocrite is to be an actor. An actor is a hypocrite, someone who wears a mask. Hypocrisy isn't, isn't about double standards. We've all got double standards. You know, we all say, I'm going to die, and then we don't, or I'm going to run, and then I don't. I'm going to do this, and then I don't. It's not about double standards. Hypocrisy is covering up the double standards and presenting an image of yourself that isn't True. And the thing with hypocrisy is it spreads. So even Barnabas, Paul says, even Barney was led astray. And Barney was a good guy, generous-hearted, kind, and enthusiastic. But even Barnabas was led astray into hypocrisy when these people came and they behaved like that. Hypocrisy kills. And let's be honest, hypocrisy is what most people outside the church think of the church. It's an enemy of unity, it's an enemy of partnership and of team, and it kills things. And of all these enemies of unity, the bottom line, the thing that they all have in common is that they are, they have their root in pleasing people. The big enemy of unity is when we're more concerned about pleasing people than we are about pleasing God, and they all have their root in fear, really. We're motivated by fear, and it creates disunity. Too scared to have Honest conversations. Too scared to be my true self. So I wear masks and I put myself out there. Creates unity. All right, let's look at principles of partnership. Principles of partnership. In other words, how do we go together? We want to go far. How do we go together well? And actually, our culture doesn't help us very much with this. It doesn't help us with learning how to go far together. Because we prize individualism above everything else about you being authentically yourself and expressing all of your deepest desires and not needing one another. We don't do membership well. We don't do submission to authority well. Um, I, watch, uh, I watch Graham Norton every Friday night. I think it's a good show. I enjoy it. I think he's funny. But man, oh man, is he disrespectful of people in authority. Every I mean, most of our humor, I suppose, works like this on TV. Just if we can mock and belittle politicians or people in authority and power, then it's somehow funny. We can all feel better about our lives. I don't know what it is. But it's, it's odd. Our culture doesn't help us learn how to do team and togetherness very well. Right, so let's talk about this. <laughs> and my rant about Graham Norton. The text, uh, the Bible that we, that we read, offers us a few insights, though, into effective partnership. The first one is um, rather surprising. It's Vulnerability. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, "I went after 14 years, I went up to see them because I wanted to check that I hadn't run in vain. You think, you've been doing this for 14 years, Paul. For 14 years, he's been planting churches, preaching the gospel, telling people about what they need to do to become Christians and get saved. It would have been easier to not have to have that conversation, wouldn't it? It would have been easier to just carry on going, Look, I know I'm right. I received it from Jesus, which is what he says in chapter 1. I got my message from Jesus. I don't need to go check it with the apostles. It's fine. But he doesn't. He says he, he, he went to them to check he wasn't running in vain. And that expression is quite a vulnerable thing to say. I wanted to make sure that I hadn't got it wrong all this time. It's easier not to have those difficult conversations. But Paul did. And we, I mean, when we find this very hard, vulnerability... And we don't, we don't let people see our fears and our concerns. I mean, Paul didn't have to say, oh, I was really concerned that I'd run in vain. He could have just said, I went to tell them my message. And actually, when he goes, he goes in a posture of humility. Because he goes to see them and he, and he even says in the Bible, he says, I spoke to a few people privately first. He, in other words, he didn't just kind of march into the church and be like, yeah, I'm Paul. You might have seen my website. I read some of my books. I've, I'm quite a big deal. I don't know if you know that. I've planted lots and lots of churches. Um, I've, see, I've cast out lots and lots of demons from people, healed lots and lots of sick people. In other words, what I have to say is important. Listen to me. But he doesn't. He goes in private and speaks to them to check it out with them. He doesn't want to embarrass them. doesn't want to throw his weight around. He doesn't, it's not about swagger and bravado. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how many small groups I've led or Bible studies I am? No, he he submits, he humbles himself, he makes himself vulnerable. You also see in Paul, a man who's tender-hearted enough to be led by revelation. So he uses that word, I went up because of revelation. Many of us thought, I don't know what that means. In the book of Acts, we read of an occasion where a man gives a prophetic word and says there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas say, oh, we'll, take the, we'll take the relief offering to the people to help them with the famine. Paul goes up to Jerusalem, makes himself vulnerable, puts his gospel out and says, this is me. And he does so in response to a prophetic word. Someone said, God says this. And he said, okay, I'll go. Actually, the, you know, for vulnerability's sake, we need to be open to what God's saying and go with that. We've got our plans, God, we're doing this, this and this. But if God, if you speak, we'll change we'll put ourselves we'll make ourselves vulnerable and say we'll respond to what we think god might perhaps possibly be saying and do it in a posture of humility but as i said it's not easy for us when you when you meet people at parties one of the first questions you ask isn't it is so what do you do in other words how valuable are you <laughs> sometimes what's going on underneath that, isn't it? Or, or certainly by the way we answer it we recognize that the question what do you do isn't just a neutral question it's a how valuable are you in the way that we answer it we're nervous of that question oh no you're going to make judgments about me but we also know that for relationships to deepen beyond the superficial or the surface level there needs to be an element of vulnerability. These are some of my fears. These are some of my concerns. These are some of my shortcomings. I mean, perhaps not in the first 30 seconds. That might kind of overwhelm people. Hi, this is me. I'm a, I've done this. But there needs that for partnership. Um, okay, next, resilience. Paul says we didn't submit. Even Titus was not forced to. We held our ground. We stood our ground. We put, we put up a united front together. This is a military image. Unity, partnership requires strength. It doesn't happen accidentally. It has to be fought for. In your marriage, you have to fight for unity. You have to decide together what's important. In your friendships, you have to prize the things that are necessary for developing a good friendship. Or in churches, there needs to be a fighting for and holding on to the truth and being resilient about it. We're in an age where the church is happy to change all kinds of doctrines for the sake of being a lot more attractive and appealing. And sometimes there's a good motive and a good heart behind that, but we have to be careful. We don't want to compromise on essentials. We need to be resilient. I think there's a theologian named Don Carson who says that in the church, you see this one generation fights tooth and nail for something, to get something re established in the church that so the church might have forgotten. They fight for it. The next generation come along and they, they assume what the previous generation had fought for. And then the third generation come along and they lose what the previous two generations had. And so it begins again. So that's why you see it in churches. I mean, the Reformation, if you like, 500 years ago was a big fighting for the truth. They were living in a, in a Europe that was corrupt and religiously and politically was in trouble until some Christians stood up and said, we're going to fight for the truth. We're in a generation that's assuming the truth. Oh, what does it matter if the Bible says this? What does it matter if, I don't know, X or Y? Or does integrity matter? Does What the Bible says about marriage or relationships or purity, does it matter what the Bible says about the church? We need to be those who fight for it. That's where partnership comes from. People who are commonly aligned about something. The next principle of partnership is appreciation. In verse 9, it says that they saw the grace that was on me. I mean, Paul had his thing that he was doing and the other apostles, they they recognized, yeah, this is a work of God. They appreciated what Paul had been doing and Paul in turn recognized, yeah, you've been called to the circumcised, I've been called to the uncircumcised. There was a healthy appreciation of one another. It's essential for partnership and unity in churches and families and friendships that rather than just... Thinking nice thoughts and thinking thoughts of appreciation about one another. We need to speak them out. We need to encourage and strengthen one another. All the while you're just thinking nice things. It doesn't actually do any good in terms of bringing unity unless or until you speak it, till you say it. And there are people like this in the church here. You are just gifts to this church by the way that you appreciate the people around you, by the way that you make yourself vulnerable enough to say, I'm so grateful for you. You have blessed me so much. When I was like this, you did this. Or I'm so grateful for how you do this so faithfully. Or when you do this, you might not be that, and I don't want you to be that. But when you are who you God's made you to be, I'm so grateful to God for you. You are gifts to this church. Those of you who are good at appreciating and encouraging one another, keep going. And what you see also in Paul is that there was a distinction between him and the others. Again, unity isn't, we've all got to do the same thing. Paul said, God has called me to this. And the apostles said, God has called us to this. And they said, fantastic, go for it, both of us, together, in one heart and mind, but doing different activity. So again, unity doesn't look like you've all got to get in the same room and do exactly the same thing. No, the Christian message invites a unity and partnership that centers around appreciating the gifts that God has given you without being threatened by them. We need each other. We need team. And lastly, on the principles of partnership is the principle and necessity of accountability. Peter was opposed by Paul to his face. Paul got up in his face and said, what you're doing, Peter, isn't right. And that's hard to do very hard to do that, particularly for many of us mild-mannered Brits. We get very nervous at the thought of any kind of honest conversation or confrontation. The the lip starts to quiver. The emotions break. And actually, we hate, many of us, we don't like giving feedback. We don't like receiving feedback, unless it's good. I mean, you can come and tell me how great this sermon was. That'll be fantastic. But as soon as someone says, let me just give you some feedback, it makes us both vulnerable. But for the sake of unity, we need to learn to be people who give feedback to one another. The trick is working out when and where and to whom it's appropriate. Because it's very easy to overbalance either side of the horse. We can fall off the horse on this side and become nitpicking and judgmental and criticize everything that anyone does in the spirit of accountability. Just speaking the truth in love, brother. But what you did there was really wrong, brother. Or you can fall off the horse the other side and go... I'm just going to leave the church rather than talk to them about the things I've got wrong with it. I'm never going to have honest conversation. I'm never going to hold them to account. I'll just grumble about them on social media and I'll use code names and no one knows. I don't know. We can fall off both sides of the horse. What we noticed the reason this was possible is because Peter and Paul had agreed together on what the gospel was. They'd agreed in this partnership. I'm doing this, you're doing this, we appreciate one another. Therefore, when Peter was living differently, Paul could say, there's a lot of Peters and Pauls, isn't there? It's quite tricky. When Peter was living differently, Paul could say, wait a minute, buddy. We agreed that this was the gospel. How you're behaving is out of line with what we agreed. Accountability then comes out of relationships of trust. And if you want to... Speak honestly to someone. You need to first work out what kind of relationship have I got, how much trust is there between the two of us, and then you can decide what level of feedback. And accountability is appropriate. But you see in this Bible passage that those things are important for partnership and unity. And we've said that the stronger the team, the greater the effectiveness. The stronger the marriage, the greater the fruitfulness of the marriage. The stronger the friendship, the greater you can, I don't know, enjoy that friendship, the deeper it can go. So it's important. But what we also see with these two things, if we put them alongside each other, uh, the next slide, is that they kind of are antidotes for one another that the enemies of unity, of suspicion, compromise, favoritism, and hypocrisy, can be offset if we instead prioritize the principles of partnerships. So vulnerability helps get rid of suspicion because it involves honest conversation. And whereas with the first list, the bottom line, the thing that was motivating them all was fear, what was motivating the partnerships is faith. It's faith. You see, Peter and Paul and James and John they were committed to something bigger than themselves. True partnership has its eye on the goal of partnership, not on the partnership itself. That's important. I mean, I'm the kind of personality type that as soon as I join a team, I'm like, can we get T-shirts? <laughs> can we have a WhatsApp group? Can we celebrate this like, together thing? That's really exciting. Sometimes I get so excited about just being together and how cool it is that we've all got the same T-shirt that I forget what we're actually here for. (laughs) To get on. A true partnership has its eye on the goal. We're not just united, we're united for this common purpose together. I mean, that's why Paul says we fought for, we didn't submit to these other people because we didn't want to lose the gospel. We wanted to preserve the gospel so that in 2017 in a school hall in Seaford, some people can hear the gospel preached because we fought for it. We were united for that purpose. Focusing on the partnership or Concentrating on unity is like staring at the windshield while trying to drive. It misses the point and makes it very difficult. So what's the gospel then that they were united around? Because that's Paul's conclusion. His conclusion after all of this. And this is a lengthy Bible passage that, as I said, is a slightly obscure one for us. But his conclusion is this. Listen, we decided, me and the original apostles, Jesus' original 12 disciples, I joined them, we had a chat, and we decided this. We agree. We agree on the gospel. We agree on God's call over our lives. We are in partnership with one another. We agree on the importance of prioritizing service to the poor. But the centerpiece that unites us is this gospel, the good news message of Jesus. It's that that changes lives. And we cannot, we must not change it. For that, for the gospel, Paul submits. He limits some of his freedom enter into partnership they commit to one another around the gospel it's the gospel that unites so what about you are you willing to submit to one another for the sake of the gospel or do you prize personal expression too highly do we rely on other things to unite us we're so used to building friendships that center around oh, we like the same films or we read the same books or we're at a similar stage of life or a similar socioeconomic status. We, we build friendships that are largely uh, homogenous. Like we build friendships with people who are very similar to us. But the gospel is the thing that's able to unite different people, people from Africa and America and Russia and Czech Republic. And The gospel unites warring people because it centers them around something much bigger than any of the things in this world something of much more significance and much more importance because we're all in the same boat. All of us are prone to suspicion and hypocrisy, uh, compromising. We're prone to favoritism. We are products of our upbringing, products of our society, our secular age. But all of us are offered the same treasure in the gospel. The gospel that meets our deepest needs, our needs for freedom and our need for legacy. I want to be significant. I want my life to count. And the gospel makes it possible. And it makes it possible by giving us something to submit and unite around. In Philippians 2, I'll finish with this. Paul, again, is writing a letter to a church. And he says that Jesus has been given the name above every name. Jesus is the name, the authority before which everything will bow. Things on earth and under the earth. Whether angels or demons or humans or whatever, everything submits to this Jesus who's given the name above every name. And how did he achieve that? What did he do to get that kind of status? Where well, it says, he became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Jesus submitted to God the Father and God the Spirit. Jesus was in partnership with God and always has been. But at the cross, he was offered significance by the enemy to, if he did things his own way. The devil said to Jesus on one occasion when he was hungry because he'd been fasting for 40 days, he said, Jesus, listen, mate, if you, turn this, you can turn this stone into a piece of bread and your hunger will go away. And the devil said to Jesus, listen, mate, I'll give you all the nations of the world at your feet if you just bow down and worship me. But Jesus kept saying, no, I will not put God to the test. I won't worship any other God. I'm going to submit only to God. I'm going to trust only him. And then in submitting to God the Father, Jesus was given much more than the enemy offered him. Because the enemy is a liar and offers only lies. Whereas God the Father offers us life and life in all of its fullness. And so, for us as a church, these things are important. But for you as an individual, to learn to live a life of submission to God is the path towards true significance and strength. Lest we all of us be found that we've run in vain, we've wasted our lives. Let it never be said of us that that is the case because we have seen the beauty and significance of Jesus and his message, his offer of forgiveness and life. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would help us as a church to be people who value partnership and unity even to the point that we're willing to emulate you and submit to one another. Ask that you'd help us to build marriages, God, that are centered around the gospel, places of friendships and close relationships, God, of vulnerability and of trust. God, places where people feel appreciated and places where people know that those around them have got their back. Jesus, we submit to you. We find ourselves at the foot of the cross. The death that you died, you died for all. So that all of us could know this kind of life-giving relationship with God. Amen. As part of our response this morning, we're going to break bread together. Uh, There's a, a table at the back and at the front here. And this is part of how we come to God each week. Remembering what... Jesus has done for us when he died on the cross he died in our place for our sin his body was broken his blood was poured out as a means as a way of making us friends with God and so as Christians we break bread we drink juice as a way of remembering what Jesus has done for us it is something that is for Christians if you're not sure if you're a Christian yet we'd love to spend more time talking to you about Jesus you're welcome to come and talk to one of the hosting team at the table, perhaps, and ask them to pray with you. But for those of us who are Christians, we're going to use this as a chance to respond to God together. So why don't we stand to our feet?